Our reading this evening comes from John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover... Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews demanded of him, miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man. For he knew what was in a man. Well, we've recently started a a new sermon series on uh, Sunday evenings on John's Gospel. 
uh, looking at different people that uh, Jesus met in the course um, of his early ministry. Um, The heading of this evening's sermon is not so much a person that Jesus met as to experiences he had, opportunity on the one hand and opposition on the other. But in many ways, of course, Jesus' life was all about opportunity, whether it was as he met with his disciples and, and taught them, as crowds gathered to hear him and as he healed many people, or whether it was with his run-ins with the, the Jewish leaders. Each time he saw it as an opportunity. An opportunity for what, he might ask. Well, the answer is there in verse 11 uh, of chapter 2, where it says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. Each was an opportunity to reveal his glory. John was someone who had seen the glory of Christ. If you turn back to chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we read there in the epilogue in verse 14, these are very familiar words from Christmas services, they'll soon be with us again. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, like many others at that time, witnessed the word, the Son, take on human form. He witnessed the glory of God in human flesh. And that is the amazing fact of what we call the the incarnation. And that prompted him to write his gospel. There are many reasons why people write books. Some authors just love writing stories. Um, Others have been accused, as I think the spectator did, of Tony Blair trying to put a positive spin on his, uh, his career. Others may want to highlight a a certain cause, which is as dear to them. Others, of course, might just want to make a bit of money. The reason John wrote his book is given at the end of the Gospel. If you turn just briefly to chapter 20, verse 31. It says there, he wrote that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in these two episodes that we're looking at this evening in chapter 2, that is precisely what happened. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, it says, He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Or over in verse 22. After Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered the words Jesus said, and it says, Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. John met Jesus in person. He saw his glory, his greatness. He wanted others to see that glory too, to put their trust in him. I hope that that is why most of us are here this evening. We want to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We want to, to grow in our faith as we do that. Of course, some will refuse to see the glory of Jesus. Many will remain in blindness, remain in denial. Which is why the second part of the reading um, is such a contrast, because there we see just how Jesus judges the heart of man. But we're going to start, first of all, with this first half of the passage and just see how Jesus reveals his glory in these first 11 verses. And he does that by giving a sign. And he gives a sign, 
in three ways we could just look at here that come out of this. There may, may be others, but uh, I just want to bring out these three ways. First of all, he gives a sign of who he is. Because the difficult thing when we read this story is we, we tend to read it through our own human eyes, don't we? I think um, it's easy to see it as a nice little episode of Jesus taking a bit of time out with his friends to, to go and enjoy himself at a wedding. And so his mother comes along, and obviously his mother knows who he is, and uh, says, look, there's a bit of a problem with uh, the wine. Can you do something about it? And he comes across his response, a bit like, you know, why are you bothering me, mum? You know, um, it's probably a bit like it must be for a, a doctor at a party, if there are any doctors here this evening. You know, you're chatting to somebody, and they realise you're a doctor, and they say, oh, by the way, do you mind having a little look at my um, ingrowing toenail? And you say, well, actually, yes, I do, I'm... I'm not working, I'm here to enjoy myself. But if you really insist, I'll have a look. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Jesus goes on to say, he says, my time has not yet come. But me, which he means the reason that he is on earth to do, to do the will of the Father in heaven has not yet arrived. And we'll see that in a minute. But the reason he still performs this miracle is not just to say, oh, all right then, mum, I'll do something. He's taking the opportunity to reveal who he is. How does he do that? Well, to, to understand exactly how, how we do that, it um, would be helpful to turn to um, the book of Amos in the Old Testament. Amos would have been a, a book which would have been familiar to all those there. Amos chapter 9, if you turn to that on page 924. Let me just read from verse 13 to verse 15. Here we have the Lord, just to put it in context, speaking through Amos to the people of Israel in exile. Um, he's given them a vision of a day when God would bring his people back from captivity. He would restore them uh, to the land he'd given to their forefathers. And the vision is of God's people gathered in a place where God is present with them. They are living in obedience to him. Uh, and they're enjoying the blessings that come from such a life. Uh, that day will be a day established by the Messiah. So let's just read here what, what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. As we come back to Jesus, the wedding in Cana, these days haven't yet been fulfilled, but the significance here of this miracle, the, the huge volume of wine that Jesus is producing here is that he is the Messiah who is introducing these days. After all, we could have just had a quick look around at the, uh, the reception and thought, well, how many people are here? How many are drinking? How many um, are driving? They can't obviously have anything to drink. Um, let's see, how many do we need? I did a quick calculation. Six jars of 20 to 30 gallons would be about a thousand bottles of wine. That's some party, isn't it? He's producing an abundance of wine, not just to show how powerful he is, which obviously he is, but I think to recall those words, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow 
from all the hills. The Messiah has come. He's with you now. He's also giving a sign of what he's come to do. There are many other occasions when Jesus uses this phrase, my time or or my hour. John 7, uh, which I think we may come onto into the series, when Jesus says he was sent by the Father, it says the Jews tried to seize him. But then it says no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Same happened in chapter 8. And later when he arrives in Jerusalem, a week before his death, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he carries on. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. The hour he's referring to is his death. And so in this episode, when he's referring to my hour has not yet come, it's, it's the hour when he will be glorified. And yet, he still chooses to do a miracle. Because it's a sign of what is to come when that hour does come. And I don't think it's incidental here that the jars he chooses to use for this miracle are described here as the jars that Jews use for ceremonial washing. Or as other translations put it, for purification. These are jars that um, he says to fill with water because it was water they used to to symbolise that purification, the washing of sin. But Jesus changes this water into wine. Why? Well, I'm sure where we are, we can remember what he says about wine later at the Last Supper where he says, this wine is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. It's the blood of Jesus by which we are purified, by which we receive forgiveness of sins. It's the blood of Jesus by which we are made clean. That is what he's getting at here. And it's the blood of a perfect lamb. Hence the master of the banquet is amazed that the groom has saved the best till till now. It's a sign of what he's come to do. And a third way I think this coming out from this passage is um, he's giving a sign that he is the perfect bridegroom. The bridegroom, I think, here obviously uh, either underestimated how many guests there would be, probably there's a few gate crashes, um, or how much maybe they would drink. But um, either way, he's been caught short. He can't nip out to the, the local offy um, because it's closed. His great celebration is about to fall flat until Jesus steps in. And when this new batch of wine turns up, the master of the banquet says, it says here is astonished. He thought the good stuff had come out first like anybody would do. Um, and then when they wouldn't notice it, bring out the rough stuff. You can't believe that the groom would save the best till last. And he's gone up in his estimation. But of course that had nothing to do with the groom. And the groom knows it had nothing to do with him. In several places in the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. We looked at one of those um, last week in our men's uh, discipleship group, which uh, meets on a Saturday morning. It's in Ephesians 5. And um, the challenge there given to, to husbands is to love their wives in a way in which Christ loved the church, the way Christ gave himself up for the church. And it says there, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does 
the church. As human husbands, we will never be able to live up to that command perfectly, to, to love our wives in that way. We are fallible human beings. And I think the point Christ is making here is he steps in and provides what we need. He feeds and he cares for us. The groom here has got it a bit wrong. I'm sure most of us have got something wrong on our wedding days. We can look back and have a bit of a smile now. I remember on our wedding day, and we got, a bit, got it a bit wrong when we walked out of the church. We'd chosen um, Vidor's Takata, if anybody knows that. It's a very quick one. I won't, I'm sure Alexandra can play it afterwards, maybe. Um, but it's a difficult one to actually walk slowly out of the church. You, you tend to find yourself almost sprinting out. Um, got out of the church, and there was a, a car waiting for us. Um, and we almost found ourselves in the car and off the reception before we'd seen anybody outside afterwards. We all have these, these little things which go a little bit wrong at weddings. But here Jesus is the perfect bridegroom who perfectly loves his bride, the church. Well, the episode finishes there in verse 11 with the words, Jesus thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. But what about this second episode? Because it's very different, isn't it? Um, here we see the righteous anger of Jesus as he goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover and uh, it says he enters the, the temple court and he unleashes his fury on the people that he sees there. He says he uses this homemade whip of ropes. He, he lets loose cattle. He drives out the, the traders and the money changes and he screams at them here. He says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? It's not exactly the, the sort of wimpy image that um, Jesus is often portrayed as. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. An image often presented by those who don't really know him. This is an angry young man here. So what exactly was the fuss about though? After all, you know, the Jews were called to, to make sacrifices at the temple and you know, maybe for those who had had to travel a long way, um, it made sense to be able to buy them before they went into the temple. A bit like somebody on a beach hiring out parasols and deck chairs saves him to drag them down to the beach. But it's also not clear here, by the way, as, as you look at it, whether this is the same event that is reported in the, the other Gospels. I think the words that are reported here are different. The way John reports it is different. It also comes at a different time in Jesus' ministry. Um, it's possible that John was not being chronological in the way he reports the life of Jesus, but um, it's also possible that it is a different event. But what about this reaction of Jesus? Why this, this, this anger? Well, there's a contrast here between my father's house and a market. The purpose of the temple was for God's people to express their love for God, to come and, and repent of their sin, to, to sacrifice for that. And by doing so, to draw closer to God. It was an expression of just how important God was to them, how much they, they treasured him in their hearts. The Psalms contain many expressions of the, just the privilege of going into the presence of God. We looked at uh, the Songs of Ascent over, over the summer. Uh, and one of those, Psalm 20, 122, it says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In Psalm 84 that we read out earlier, it says, how lovely 
is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That is the purpose of the temple, to come and worship God. The purpose of a market is very different. It's basically to to make money. Interesting hearing about Vince Cable, our uh, business secretary, um, make comments about um, some of the, uh, those wicked people in banks. Never catch me in one of those. Um, he did claim he was pro-market, but he also uh, described them as spivs and gamblers in the city. The original reason, though, why these stalls may have been set up may have been fine. You know, maybe it was to facilitate people's worship, but what has happened here is that has been long forgotten. Greed has now taken over. Maybe the traders are exploiting the sort of weakness of the worshippers coming. Maybe they've got a bit of a monopoly. Um, it is interesting that Jesus doesn't actually criticise those coming and buying. It is the sellers who he's directing his anger at. But the key to this passage is right at the end. If we're to understand Jesus' anger here. Verse 25. Have a look there. It says, He knew what was in a man. He knew what was in their hearts. He could see exactly what was going on, what their thought process was, and he could see that it was a love of money and not a love of God. Now, I've been doing a series in the morning on our attitudes of money, so I won't go over some of the same ground here now, but it just re-emphasises the need for us to look deep in our hearts and to, to ask ourselves, where does our treasure lie? As Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But what really made the situation worse here in the eyes of Jesus was not so much that here were people who loved money. After all, there were many people who loved money that he came across in his ministry, but he didn't treat them all in this way. Just think of the tax collector, Zacchaeus, and the way he was very gracious towards him. What makes Jesus here really angry was the hypocrisy of these people. They were using the cover of something religious and devout to hide their greed and their love of money. And that is what really makes him angry. That's why the, the scandal in the, the Roman Catholic Church, which has, we've been hearing about this this last week as the Pope came over, the, the, the paedophile priest, is, is so awful because not only is the crime itself so bad, but they were hiding behind their position to commit these awful acts. And that's why Jesus reserves some of his strongest condemnation for the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And it's easy to look at others and think, well, just how hypocritical they are, aren't they? But sometimes we just need to look at ourselves and say, are we guilty of the same thing? Because we are known as Christians, and hopefully those of us who are Christians here this evening will be known as Christians outside of this, this church building as you go off to work tomorrow. If we are known as Christians, people will look at our actions. They will see, see us, what we're doing, what we're saying. And they'll be quick to see any hypocrisy in them. And that can have a bad effect, obviously, on the cause of the gospel. Jesus is angry when we don't treasure the Father in our hearts when we are hypocritical. But his 
Anger prompts two different responses here, doesn't it? Look at the response of the disciples, first of all, in verse 17. Look what his disciples say. They, they, they don't see this as a sort of mad rant. The first thing they say is it re- they remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. They saw what he was doing. They, they heard what he was shouting. And they made that connection with, with Psalm 69 that says, for zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. They're not surprised by this outburst. It merely confirms to them just how important it is for their new master that people treasure his father in their hearts. But look at the reaction of the Jews. It's very different, isn't it? The Jews wanted proof of his credentials. They say, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Why do one group of people see in Jesus... uh, a sign of his zeal for his father's house. And another group demand a sign, demand proof of his authority. Well, it's revealing the state of their hearts. As Jesus said later, he said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. What are the, the Jews doing here? Well, they're, they're dodging the issue, aren't they? You know, they're doing what we often do, I guess, when we feel uncomfortable about something. When we want to deflect attention away from our own failings pointed at somebody else, be like football managers, when their team is lost, they point at that one bad decision made by the referee, rather than the four goals they let in. The Jews don't need signs to prove what is true. What they need are hearts that are not full of greed, but that love God, that love his son. Well, the way Jesus deals with them is to give them this this little enigmatic response. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What they say? It's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it again in three days? What was Jesus talking about? Well, fortunately, John tells us here. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. If the temple was about worshipping God. What the, the Jews were doing here was destroying the purpose of the temple through their hypocrisy, through their greed. And so God would, in 40 years' time after this, would allow that temple to be physically destroyed and raised to the ground by the Romans. He wouldn't allow that hypocrisy to, hypocrisy to continue. But what Jesus is also saying is, your rejection of me as the Messiah will, will lead you to destroy my body, will lead you to kill me. But for Jesus to say, I will raise this temple in three days is to point to the resurrection of his body. It's also to point to the replacement of the temple as the place of worship with Jesus as the uh, place of worship. That is where we meet God, through Jesus. It's in him that we come to the Father. We'll be looking in a couple of weeks' time at um, the the meeting of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at at the well. And there Jesus says to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Well, as we um, wrap this up, I hope there's been many applications here that you've been able to make as we've gone through the passage.
I hope you have seen something more of the glory of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just another bloke at a wedding reception. He was the Word who had come from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And hopefully as we have studied God's Word here together, you will have seen his glory, the same glory that those who witnessed him in the flesh experienced. He came and he signaled the start of a new era which will be fulfilled when he comes again and new wine will drip from the mountains, will flow from all the hills. He came for a purpose. All his life led to the hour for which he had come when as the perfect bridegroom he would lay down his life for his bride, the church. He came from the Father and his zeal was that the Father's name would be glorified, not abused through the hypocritical worship practices that were going on. And the question is for us this evening, do we share that same zeal for the Father? The place to start is to, to look at our hearts. Do we treasure him in our hearts? And hopefully it also prompts us to want to, to take every opportunity that we have in whatever situation God has placed us to reveal his glory. Whether you meet those who are open to, to hearing about Jesus or those who are totally opposed to him. Let's look for opportunities in what we do and what we say to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ.